your seats. <clears throat> I want to open with a passage of scripture today uh, from Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. So the Apostle Paul wrote this. It was a letter to the church at Ephesus. And uh, they were a church that was in a challenging time. They're a great church, uh, but there was always this kind of constant threat that there would be something that would emerge, some teaching or some false teacher would come along and, and cause division in the life of that body of believers. And so Paul was just writing to them to re-encourage them in a way to continue doing some of the things that they were doing and, uh, and to remain firm in the faith. And he was reminding them really of what they had. He was reminding them in Ephesians chapter 2 that they had a family. And so I want to look at this really quick. It's verses 19 through 22. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Let me read that last sentence again. In him, you are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. So in our series on the Apostles' Creed, we're at uh, the following statement. You'll see it on the screen. I believe in or we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints. It's where we are in our creed. Uh, churches and saints. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Or does that ring any bells when you think of those two words, churches and saints? Shelly and I have had, uh, Shelly's my wife, she's sitting over here, in case anybody wants to know. Just some random woman I call Shelly. Um, <laughs> Shelly and I have had the privilege of traveling uh, out of the country a few times, uh, not as much as we'd want to. Uh, she's been to Ireland. I've yet to go there, but uh, we've been all over the place, and one of the things that you see all over the place are ancient churches, and uh, we've seen some beautiful churches, particularly in Antigua, Guatemala. Uh, there's just these amazing, amazing cathedrals and uh, ancient, ancient churches that we've been able to see. But out of all the churches that we've seen in the different places that we've gone, the buildings that we've seen, there is one building that kind of stands above the rest, and, uh, and it's this one. You'll see it on the screen. This is St. Basil's Cathedral in Moscow, Russia. That's on Red Square. So um, in 1998, uh, August of 1998, uh, Shelly and I were privileged to go for a couple weeks to Russia on a, a trip to go serve a church and people in the community of Moscow and then Vyazma, which was outside of Moscow. But, um, of course, you spend a couple days walking around Moscow and different things, and you run into this. Uh, the Kremlin's right over here, and uh, there's another cathedral right over here. There's a bunch of cathedrals everywhere. But uh, this one is so radically different, uh, and it, it is not uncommon for it to rise up to the top of a list of the world's most beautiful churches. St. Basil's Cathedral. So Ivan the Terrible commissioned that church to be built back in the 1500s. And uh, there's a rumor that says that uh, once it was completed, that Ivan the Terrible had the builder's eyes gouged out so that he would never be able to build something like that again, which sounds like the total Christian thing to do when you're building a church, right? Uh, so that's, that's what he did. That's the rumor, right? Okay. 
Now, um, as messed up as that is, the colors, uh, the architecture, the majesty of that, that is a radical building. I mean, it's absolutely, when you're standing in front of it in Red Square, it is, it's almost like a cartoon. It doesn't seem real when you're looking at it. It's just an incredible, incredible building. But here's the deal. It's beautiful, and it, as beautiful as all those buildings are, and I'm sure some of you have been in some beautiful, beautiful church buildings, um, as beautiful as, as they are, as, as commemorative of some of the saints that they've been built to honor, uh, these are not what Jesus had in mind when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. He didn't have St. Basil's Cathedral in mind. He didn't have the churches in Antigua. He didn't have this building in mind when he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The truth is there's no life in those buildings. As beautiful as St. Basil's Cathedral is, there's no life in a building. No more life than there is in this building on any given day of the week at any time. There's no life in it. Now, you and I know something, and, and here's the deal. In my heart of hearts, I really do believe that we must truly know this. I really do. I hope we really know this. When we say we believe in the church and the communion of saints, we aren't saying that we believe in a place. We're not saying that we believe in a location. Okay? Uh, we aren't declaring that I have a belief in a structure. Or worse yet, I, have a, I, I believe in a certain program or a certain preacher or this or that. We're not saying we believe. When we say we believe in the, the Holy Catholic Church and the communion of saints, we're not saying we believe in those different things, those personalities. That's not what we're saying. When Paul wrote to that church in Ephesus, he was reminding them in a world of confusion, in a world of division, where a lot of that division began to trickle into the life of the church, he wanted to really remind them what they had. What do you believe that you have? And it's the very thing that you saw threaded throughout that video that came before the message. What do you have because of real life? You saw the word over and over and over again, a family. You have a family. Now, so for some people, the word family, that brings up all kinds of positive feelings. Uh, I'm looking forward to Thanksgiving. All three of our boys, this is the first time Shelly and I have been alone in a house in a long time. And uh, all three of our boys will be back home from college for Thanksgiving. We're looking forward to that. And then her family's going to fly here for Christmas. We'll get to have Christmas in our home this year, which is always kind of fun. And, you know, the word family for a lot of people brings up traditions, brings up memories, family vacations, maybe family vacations you'd like to forget. Uh, I mean, it brings up all kinds of different things. So the word family has a lot of positive connotations to it for some people, but for some people, not so much. Not so much. In fact, in a group this large, uh, if I asked you what person in life has hurt you more than any other person, I bet in a group this large, a bunch of us would say somebody we're related to, a family member, a family member. So while the idea of family sounds kind of Norman Rockwell and sweet and nice and everything, we all know, we all know, every single one of us know how imperfect families can be. We know that. In fact, we know how imperfect the church family can be. It's not uncommon uh, in our world today 
to find Christians who have divorced themselves from the family, from the church. Christians who have walked away. Whether it's the political grossness that is seen among church people or outright abuse, silencing of victims, or leaders who just live lives of just opulence and greed and self-promotion. For a lot of people, they look at that, they, they look at the caricature that the church has become, they look at the pain sometimes that the church causes, the hypocrisy of the church, and they look at that and they think, I don't want people to look at me and think I have anything to do with that. And so they walk away, they distance themselves from what the church looks like and feels like in those moments. Over the last several years, uh, what you have is something called deconstruction. Deconstructionists. Uh, these are people who have been immersed in the evangelical church who have stepped away now and are stripping off some of the baggage that's been attached to what it means to be a part of the church. All of that being stripped away, stripping off the baggage, seeking to get back to something that represents a little bit more of who Jesus is, what Jesus says, what Jesus looks like, how he operated. For some of us, we're deconstructing and reconstructing on the fly while we're trying to help other people deconstruct and then reconstruct as well. That's a lot of constructing. <laughs> but that's, that's kind of what's going on. I'm comfortable calling myself, and it's taken me a bit to get to this place to call myself a deconstructing reconstructionist. That's what I feel like I am. I love the church. I, I, I would die for the church, and I live for the church. I believe in the church. So I, I can't walk away from it. So what it means is I've got to get really, really good at what it means to strip off the things that aren't the church and allow God to begin reconstructing back the things that are. And then I have this weird responsibility to help other people do the same thing. <laughs> and it's hard. It's really, really, really hard. I'm not content. I, I just can't. I'm not content to distance myself and dismantle and remove myself from what church has become. Uh, I'm passionate uh, about reconstructing what church actually is and can be. I, I really am. I'm super hopeful. I am about what the church can be in the world that we find ourselves in today and walking with other people to reconstruct a faith that brings healing and hope, not division, not pain. Now, family pain hurts. Family pain hurts. And I agree. Listen, it is tempting to disconnect from the church. It is tempting to go it alone. It's very tempting to wash your hands of it, say, I've had enough, I'm creating my boundaries, I'm distancing myself. I, I totally get that. But then there's this really awkward truth that you have to wrestle with. You're still related. <laughs> um, we need each other. The church is actually, uh, the church is actually God's gift to you. How do you feel about that? The church is God's gift for you. Does it feel like a gift? The church is not a human organization. As, as organized as we sometimes think that we are and uh, humanly orchestrated we feel like we are, it's not a human organization. It was created by God and through the Holy Spirit, it's given to people like you and me as a means of grace for you to become better and more like Christ and to grow in Christ-likeness. The church is God's creation. The church is God's family, which is why it hurts so bad. Why it hurts so bad when the family breaks. 
when the family is fractured. Have you experienced that? That's why it hurts so bad. You've experienced some of that pain. The church is designed to be one, okay? We believe the church is actually all believers everywhere at all times. Okay? That, that's what we believe. We believe that there ought to be unity. Our whole theme this whole year is what does it mean for us to be one? In a world that's divided, in a world that's caustic, in a world that literally thrives on creating divisions between people, what does it mean for the church to literally be the complete opposite of that? To represent a unified kingdom, one. What does it mean for us to be actually bound by the blood of Jesus Christ together and represent Jesus well in the world that we find ourselves in so that people actually look at us and think, okay, holy cow, that's totally not what I expected. That's totally different. What does it look like for us to be one? We believe that that's possible. But unfortunately, unity is not the first thing that pops into most people's minds when they think about the church in the 21st century, which is why the Apostles' Creed is so important. This is why this creed is so important. It's true that there's a lot of different expressions for the church in the world today. We see that through all the different denominations, different people's pet doctrines, all those kinds of different things, but the core doctrines, these, these mile markers on our path home, these core issues are all the same. They unite us beyond those differences. We have more in common than we do with what, with what brings us together than what divides us. And the creed highlights those things. And Paul is expressing in Ephesians chapter 2 the dividing wall of hostility, whatever you want to call the dividing wall of hostility, Jesus has tore that down. It could be racial, it could be gender, it could be uh, whatever you want to call it, you know, socioeconomic status, whatever the dividing walls are that we have established, the haves, have-nots, whatever, all of those come down through Jesus. We're one. We're unified as the body of believers. And in God's hands, truly, when the church is in God's hands, I would argue that the beauty of the church far exceeds any beauty that you and I would ascribe to an earthly structure. Far exceeds it. The church is a special creation of God's love, and when the church is truly the church, um, I just don't think there's anything more beautiful. Um, I don't know if you've ever experienced that. Have you ever experienced when you've just been, that's, that's how the church is supposed to be. Have you ever seen that? It was 2011, and uh, it was night. I got a call on my cell phone from a pastor of a, who's an associate pastor of Chicago First Church of the Nazarene in Chicago. And I did not know him. I don't even know where he got my cell phone number. But uh, he called me because of just random connections and family connections and different things. He called me. It was about 9 o'clock at night. And he said, look, you and I have never met, but here's the deal. There's a guy in Racine, which is where I was living at the time. Uh, his son, he just came home. Uh, he went downstairs. His son had graduated high school. This was July of 2011. And his son, he found his son in the basement. He had taken his life. And he's like, he has got nobody. Can you go over there? So here I am at 9 o'clock at night. I don't know anybody in this home. And I walked into, um, I mean, there, just, there aren't words to describe the scene. Okay? There aren't words to describe the atmosphere. There's no words to describe any of it. Uh, all I was doing was meeting a man, a single father, 
whose 18-year-old son has just taken his own life in his basement. And um, met with him, prayed with him, held him, um, worked with the officers and people on the scene, uh, worked with other family members who had shown up. And then after everything was over, that man looked at me and he said, I need your help. He goes, I need your help. This was a man who had nothing to do with our church whatsoever, at all. I need your help. I said, okay. I said, okay. And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, oh my word. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I'm doing in this moment or why I'm in this moment right now. But if there was ever an opportunity for the church to be the church, this was it. And so the next morning, I got on the phone. And I just about called every single human being in that church. <laughs> and I said, okay, this is the moment where we decide who we're going to be moving forward. And in a week, our entire building was full of teenagers who had come for a funeral. And here I was, standing on a platform, leading this congregation, leading uh, these people who were so broken and so hurt and so disillusioned and so angry and so sad and so everything that you can imagine wrapped up in the middle of all of this and Blair, this man uh, in the front, just sobbing and weeping. And I was watching men who he'd never met in his entire life walk up to him and hold him and console him. I watched our people line up all kinds of different food. I don't think Blair went mealless for a year after that. And I watched that man get loved into the life of a family of people. At the end of that funeral, Blair walked out of that building, a member of our church, whether he knew it or not. That's the beauty of the church. That's the beauty of this family. He all of a sudden had a people. He had people. He had a family that loved him and would willing to, was, was willing in his most broken moment to the point where five years later, again, nine o'clock at night, my phone rings. And his daughter had done the same thing. This time it was different. I showed up at his house and I wasn't the first one there. His family was there. His people. When you, listen, sorry, when you see the church do that kind of stuff, you can't, there's just no, that's, that's the beauty of the church. And when, it, when it's in God's hands and when it works, it's one of the most beautiful things that you've ever seen. One of the most beautiful things in God's hands an extension of the incarnation. It literally is the body of Jesus Christ in the flesh, moving in the world today. That's the church, when it's in God's hands. Um, and the creed, this creed helps us to understand, sorry, some things about the gift that God has given us. And first of all, it's holy. Again, through 21st century eyes, uh, it's hard to see the church as holy. Sometimes, uh, as we reconstruct we have to address the hard truths. Here's a hard truth. The worst interpersonal pain that I've ever experienced in my life. I did not know Jesus for the first 18 years of my life. The worst interpersonal pain that I've ever experienced in my life has happened at the hands of other believers. Um, and I know some of you have had that ex experience. Uh, I'm not alone in that. You don't have to be connected to the church for very long to be extremely disappointed. Um, 
before anger and jealousy, bitterness, envy, power grabbing, all of that becomes visible, bubbles up to the surface. So the idea that the church is holy feels like a joke sometimes. The idea that somehow the church is some super special place where those people are the exception, it seems really kind of, it feels insulting in a way. That's holy? Really? There's this author, his name's Luke Johnson, he calls this the scandal of appearances. In other words, Christians at times believe one thing, even though appearances would, would point to the contrary. For example, we believe that God heals. We believe that God can heal. We also all know that we're going to die. <laughs> like at some point, this, this joint right here is going to give up. This, this thing that I'm living in, it may have given up already. I don't know. But <laughs> this, this thing's going to quit, right? Okay, so, but that doesn't mean I still don't believe that God can't intervene in people's lives and bring healing. Okay, so, so we believe that. So we believe it's the scandal of appearances. We believe in a future resurrection of our bodies. We're going to talk about that at the end of the creed. We believe in that, but at the same time, our bodies we know are going to wither. They're going to decay. We believe that our sins are forgiven, even though the memory of your sins have not gone away. Okay, so we believe these things. The church being holy is one of those things. It's the scandal of appearances. When we declare that we believe in the holy Catholic church, we are not claiming perfection. That's not what we're saying. But it is holy. It's holy because it's not our church, it's his. It's who owns it. Who is the head of the church? It's holy because it doesn't belong to us, imperfect people. The church belongs to a holy God. God set it apart from the world. He's made it his. What makes the church holy is not the people who are in it. It's the one who leads it. That's what makes the church holy. And his goal is to keep making the church holy, which means working in all of our lives, making us more and more like his son Jesus, clean, righteous, holy. He wants us to be Catholic. Uh Uh-oh. Are you ready? Okay. How horribly unfortunate that we discard words because we don't like the associations that sometimes get attached to them. Uh, and this is one of those. We, we lose a lot when we toss a word out because of the associations that are tied to it. Uh, Pastor Ben and I talk about this all the time, uh, the word leadership. The word leadership gets thrown around all kinds. Just because you can get a crowd to listen to you stand on a platform does not mean you're a good leader, okay? Uh, But the word leadership has just kind of been destroyed over the years. So Ben and I kind of have fun reclaiming what that word means. Like, no, we get to decide what being a true biblical leader looks like, and it doesn't look like the way other people maybe sometimes make it look. And so I think it's important to reclaim words sometimes, and this is one of those. Uh, There's a lot of things that can be said about the word Catholic in most circles. The word Catholic is just 100% completely associated with the Roman Catholic Church, right? The Roman Catholic Church. Now, words are really, really important. So I want to make sure you're hearing me straight. Words are really important, which is why we should pause here for a moment on the word Catholic. It actually means universal, worldwide. That's what the word Catholic means. It means all. A Roman Catholic uses a single location, Rome, to actually change the word Catholic. 
it centralizes it onto a specific location. But the word Catholic itself actually means decentralized. It's all, all-encompassing, it's universal. There is one true church, one, that exists all over the world. It is Catholic in nature. Okay. Now here's to me, though, the bigger reason why this is such a good word. When we say we believe in a holy Catholic church, we acknowledge that that church is all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Genders, races, nationalities, political parties, worship styles, the haves, the have-nots, the sick, the well, the accepted, the unaccepted. It's a big church. It's a Catholic church. So when we say we believe in the Holy Catholic Church, we're saying actually our loyalties rise above class. Our loyalties to one another rise above our politics. They rise above our nationality. They rise above our legal status. They rise above all those things. Our loyalties to one another rise above any divisive thing that you can think about today. And when you experience that kind of oneness, again, that kind of loyalty, I would challenge you to find anything more beautiful on earth than that oneness that rises above all of that. And watch this. Catholic also means all believers at all time. At all time. The disciples John and Mary, Abraham and Sarah, St. Augustine, St. Basil in Moscow, you, me, Catholic in geography, Catholic in time, Catholic in person. What we believe is we are a part of this timeless and extremely diverse communion of saints. As beautiful as what we will celebrate here in just a moment. This is not referring to communion. The communion of saints is not the Lord's table. Communion means community, real life, community, church. It's tangible. It's a real gathering of real people who meet at real places and fulfill God's purposes in the real world. It's not a building. It's a visible community, believers committed to encountering God. We are here to encounter God and then embrace our identity in Jesus Christ and embody the mission of God now in the world that we find ourselves in. We believe in a community of saints. What we have when we say we believe is a family. We are only the church fully and completely when we function as a family. Not only that, you're connected to this vast communion of saints. You have, you have communion with Christians all around the world today and all those who have gone before. You have communion today with those folks you saw from Palmercy to Guatemala on the screen at the beginning of the service. You have communion today with some people who are holding fast to their faith in Moscow, Russia today people you will never meet this side of heaven. Your gone, deceased, godly grandmother is a part of that communion of saints. So is the Christian that you've yet to meet that's sitting in this room with you right now. Your family. So what do we have? What do you have? 
I asked those people to submit that, and I was very pleased to see uh, that word family run through there. But as we look at this creed, where we're at today, what do we have? You've got a loving Father who welcomes you home. The way home is Jesus. He's a suffering servant, but he's also a shepherd resurrected. In him, we have a just judge, perfect, holy, a just judge who's coming again, and he's given us the breath of real life, the Holy Spirit, so that we may live as one holy family. That's what we have today. I'm so grateful for those that submitted what they did. It did my heart good to see those posts this last week. What do you have because of real life? Thank you for being a, a great family. Thank you for being who you are. This, this holy church, this holy church that belongs to him. I'm going to ask those that are going to come and help us.